Hi everyone, welcome back to the Physionic Podcast. Today's episode is a really unique one because I decided that through the quarantine period the world is enduring, I might as well reach out to some of my friends and research and cover some topics they find especially fascinating. As such, I contacted my friend Garrett Bunce. Garrett is a neuroscientist and is currently pursuing his PhD in neuroscience, but he also has a background in engineering. When I first met Garrett, I was struck by how smart he is, and his love for neuroscience certainly shines through. In this episode, we dive into transhumanism, which is a concept I hadn't heard before this conversation, but if you think of uploading your consciousness to a system that can carry on your existence even after you die, that is a major concept in transhumanism. So we dive into consciousness, try to relate it to the brain, Garrett discusses some cutting-edge research and how machines may or may not be able to help human beings in the future. With that introduction out of the way, let's jump into the podcast. I hope you enjoy. Okay, so uh, I'm going to have already done an introduction before this episode so people can actually get some sense of what's going on. So we can jump into uh, a bit about your background. So uh, Garrett, go ahead and jump into a bit of your background. So tell us a little yeah. bit just like basically about like your research and then kind of your interests and things of that nature. Because um, my understanding is we're going to be going into a, process, a, a concept known as transhumanism, which is certainly something that's completely foreign to me. But when I reached out to you and you asked, and I asked uh, what you'd be interested in talking about, you mentioned that transhumanism would be one of those things. So uh, I'm really pumped to get into it. So go ahead and take it away and talk a little bit about your research after this ambulance goes by. <laughs> yeah. Sorry about these noises. Yeah, um, for you. yeah. Yeah. You can tell I'm home. Um, yeah. So I'm uh, currently a second year PhD student in a developmental neuroscience lab. Uh, but prior to getting into developmental neuroscience, I studied in a lab that uh, looked at neural computation, which is uh, kind of relating the mathematics of the brain into, um, into or the mathematics of brain processing um, in a way that we can actually simulate and predict neural activity and how it correlates to behavior. As well, I have um, some background in um, biomedical engineering. Uh, when I was in undergrad at the University of Rochester, I took, I got a major, I majored in neuroscience, but also had a minor in biomedical engineering, where part of my research projects were also developing novel neural technologies to um, record brain activity. So um, kind of those uh, pieces of background um, that I've kind of combined into one now studying like the actual biological brain has really led to this interest in how all of these things intersect and this grandiose idea of transhumanism in which to define quickly, I guess, would be yeah, that. Um, it's really the concept of extending some aspect of human life using neural technologies. Extending, extending life through neural technologies. So just, not, it just any be, aspect. I guess, I guess it doesn't have to be neural technologies, but um, really through any technology. So a great example of a, kind of a transhuman um, character in like modern super. Uh, 
modern fiction would be the DC comic book hero, uh, Cyborg. He is someone who has integrated machines and uh, robotics into his completely um, daily routine, and he actually cannot live without the machine. Uh, now, that's not necessarily an aspect of transhumanism, but he has obtained this um, beyond human capabilities with the assistant of machines. Okay. And do you, you think that's something, I mean, before we actually dive into the main questions and whatnot, do you think that's something that's uh, become kind of a forefront in people's minds, like in terms of, uh, like, you think that's a gateway to kind of the future? So, um, granted, uh, people are definitely looking to move that way. Uh, Elon Musk, when he opened his uh, company Neuralink in 2016, right. I want to say, kind of came out with these like big uh, overall goals that Neuralink was going to have. And one of them was being able to upload consciousness and upload the brain into a cybernetic route. Right. Um, so it's definitely at the forefront of people's minds, but I hope with this discussion, we'll actually kind of uh, realize this idea more because right now it's kind of this fanciful idea of humanity trying to escape death. Okay. So, okay. So it's got a bit of a morbid twist to it. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's kind of like the idea of the everlasting search for immortality and people uh -huh. think that this might be one of those. And so... Okay. Okay. So let me jump into the first question a little bit because we, we had kind of talked about some of the questions we wanted to cover. So talking about like consciousness, right? How would you kind of define that for this discussion? Because that's something that we're going to have to define kind of going forward as we go into transhumanism. And then, uh, well, I'll, I'll get to my second question afterwards, but how, how would you define that for, for this particular discussion? I realize it's pretty philosophical, but regardless. Yeah, so that's exactly what I want to um, kind of do is not use the philosophical definition of tra or of consciousness because um, when you get into a discussion about more of the philosophical side, it's really hectic and chaotic. And, and overall, there is no good definition of consciousness. Um, we don't really have a good grasp of what makes consciousness so unique. Um, really, what we can describe it as and I think for this discussion, the best way to think about it would be um, what is the minimal uh, level of complexity and subjectivity and things that if we were to upload it into a computer at the instant that it is uploaded into the computer and you are standing next to it at, at that instance, you are both the same. You have had the entirety same conscious experience so all prior experiences are the same. So then as soon as that thing starts, it is effectively you. Um, so when we think about that, we break that down more, consciousness really can be defined as the qualitative, subjective, and unifying experiences that we all have. Um, so qualitative being things like, I like plants. So I like the color green or the color blue. Right. Right? Yeah. Um, where subjective experiences are, oh, I saw the sunset today and it was beautiful. Where someone, or I mean, this is qualitative as well, but it's also like, this is my own personal experience. And unifying would be that different sensory modalities are all kind of combined into one state, one experience. And that would be like 
combining the auditory uh, sensation, the visual sensation, and maybe if you're like cooking or something, smell and touch and all these other things that are non-primary sensory like mood and emotion. Okay. Yeah. So do you, I mean, just to kind of offshoot off of that. So do you, you think that's something that's going to end up being able to be quantified then in some way, even though it's very much a qualitative experience or it feels like a qualitative experience? Yeah. So the big reason that we should, and neuroscience is starting to look more into the realm of consciousness is because while yes, it is subjective, there is definitely something, um, real about it. Like we know it happens. We experience it every day. We know it's a brain phenomena. Um, so of course it has to be able to be something that we can measure because it's happening. Um, so just by that virtue, like we should be able to, and that's not necessarily quantify it, but be able to create some sort of description of it. Hmm. It's spoken like a true scientist. <laughs> it's in the brain, so it has to have, we have to have a way to, me to measure it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, we also know, we know, um, we know very well that the reason why the brain is the answer in this case is because there are so many um, disorders and instances where the conscious experience has been changed by neuroscience, by something happening to the brain. Um, such as trauma with the classic uh, Phineas Gage, who um, was this guy, for those who don't know, um, who was a railroad worker. And one day he got um, impaled with a railroad spike and it pierced his prefrontal cortex. And after that, um, everyone had described that Phineas Gage was now a new person because of this trauma to the prefrontal cortex. And he like didn't like the same things. He was angry at different people that he had never been angry at before. And this is truly, I think, a huge, uh, a huge piece of evidence to suggest that consciousness is in the brain. Just again, it, that that particular story kind of sparked a, another question for me. If you'll indulge me, uh, if you were to start looking at this, would you start looking at kind of the higher order areas of the brain that are more defined by humans? Like you mentioned the prefrontal cortex, you think that's an area that you would specifically focus on? And do you think that you might look at some of those lower regions of the brain? Yeah, so um, it's kind of hard to say. And a lot of the modern research in consciousness is kind of mixed on how we should do it. Um, There's some people who theorize that consciousness is um, this microcosm of different subset consciousnesses. So your auditory cortex or you process auditory information contains your auditory consciousness and mm. your visual area will contain its visual con uh, consciousness and so mm. forth and so forth. And that these combine at some level um, to create our overall conscious experience. And then there's other people who think, no, it's the entirety of the network the um, overall global activity of the brain that encodes consciousness, that creates our conscious experience. So where I would go is I'm kind of more on the, personally, and this is a very personal um, philosophy, is that I'm on the idea that where I'd be in the camp or school that it's the overall activity, the global activity uh, of the brain that kind of enables this conscious experience. And 
I suggest that because we just know that there's so many complex computations the brain must be doing. And in order to really create this unifying experience, it has to be due to the crazy level of networks that are just organizing themselves. And we can see that so beautifully when we look at uh, large brain scans that the, the network activity of the brain is always just so beautifully organized. Yeah, I can certainly see that. I mean, of course, I don't have nearly the experience you do, but I mean, based off of my intuition, it seems like that would make a lot of sense to me. Um, so let me jump into the next question. So we ended up wanting to discuss uh, how is consciousness tied to biology and neuroscience? And I know you've touched on it a little bit, but if you want to go into a little bit more of that, or maybe like on a cellular, like how, how would you, how would you exactly answer that? Yes. Yeah, so, um, so currently there's um, some, like I mentioned before, there's some hypotheses and I think it's best to kind of highlight two of the most recent hypotheses uh, that have come out. And one of them is actually by, uh, was originally created in the 90s by uh, Francis Crick, who was part of Watson and Crick. Uh, and he came out with this idea that there's this, this brain region called the clostrum. And it's only in higher order mammals and some reptiles. Uh, and it's this really small area of brain in between your cortex, which is this higher level processing and your um, basal, like low level processing areas like thalamus and um, other very rudimentary uh, biological processing areas. And this area called the claustrum has shown to be the most vastly connected uh, part of, of the brain where it is almost connected to every higher order area. So the claustrum is connected to prefrontal cortex, motor sensory cortex, uh, motor, or motor cortex, somatosensory cortex, visual cortex, all of these higher order areas um, that we believe to be part of this more, um, more conscious experience. It's connected to all of them. And it seems to be organizing and coordinating their activity at some level. So there's that hypothesis that um, this claustrum area is really the connecting area of our consciousness. So the likelihood of one area being um, the, the keeper of consciousness is kind of a, or no, it's called the seed of consciousness. Mm. It's kind of an abstract and silly idea just because we, we don't know the classroom well enough, and it seems to be only doing a uh, coordination process, not really like a perceptual intention experience kind of processing. So we don't, a lot of people disregard this hypothesis. The other hypothesis is that uh, global brain activity in awake animals and humans is, is in particular uh, have this frequency that if you look at a frequency map, it is enriched and always present when we're awake behaving or what we would might say is we are conscious. And this frequency uh, peak is around the frequency of 40 to 70 Hertz, which is called the gamma frequency. And some people believe that the gamma frequency is kind of the keeper of consciousness or is, or this is the true seed of consciousness. And there's some more compelling data uh, that came out actually just a few months ago where they looked at a projection in the brain, um, the thalamus to the 
uh, primary visual cortex, which is a low-level sensory processing area to a high-level sensory processing area for vision. And they manipulated this 40 to 70 hertz gamma frequency when the um, when uh, monkeys were asleep and or under anesthesia. And what they were able to do is they were able to wake the monkeys up into a conscious state when they were deep in anesthesia by manipulating this. And what they've claimed, these authors, is that this is like some way a manipulation of the consciousness state. Now, it seems more awake and arousal to me, but it is one of the more um, predominant theories that is global and unifying in the entire brain. Whether it actually changes the animal subjective experience is part of the problem and why studying consciousness is hard is because we don't know what the animal subjective experience is and we can't ask them what their subjective experience is. Yeah, I imagine that's really tough because it, it's almost like they, sh they should have some sort of definition for being able to experience and actually the experience, the, the way that we feel about the experience itself. So it seems like they, I mean, they woke these monkeys up, right? Essentially, they went from an unconscious state to a conscious state. But uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that they actually ended up experiencing anything or, I mean, I'm sure they did, but um, actually being able to, to create that distinction between the two, at least in my mind, it seems like there might be a distinction between the two. Yes. Yeah. And I think that that's probably the biggest argument for uh, why this paper didn't fully grasp the entirety of consciousness uh, because that very issue. Yeah. It's almost like they took it extremely literally, like being unconscious, you know, from being asleep and then actually being conscious. Um, I, I don't actually know. Is there a way to be conscious while you're asleep? Have you run across anything like that? I mean, I know it's kind of a strange question. Yeah, so um, I believe and I would say that many people um, would suggest that there's some aspect of dreams that are a conscious experience, right? Mm -hmm. they, are, um, they are subjective experiences. We navigate them and we remember them and we have feelings towards them. Uh, so we have some sort of qualitative experience while we're in the dream. So I would say, and a lot of the times they are what we might suggest be unifying or something where they're, uh, we, we hear things, we see things, um, and sometimes we even feel things while we're dreaming or like feel things being like touch things and have right. that response. So yeah, there right. is some aspect of it that seems to be very, uh, very much like consciousness and it meets some of the more, um, stringent criteria, uh, the only thing there is it's not a perfect definition because there also seems to be features of consciousness like intention. Like we, we have a motivation to do something. And so we, we are in control of that action where a lot of the times in dreams, we are kind of passive viewers of the experience and we are not active agents. One of the things of consciousness is that we are active agents in our environment. And so that might be where, uh, dreams being a form or being a form of consciousness is kind of iffy. So without even jumping into this whole transhumanism discussion, we've already had difficulty with the idea of consciousness, you know, uh, on kind of a neuroscience level, trying to pinpoint where it is. Uh, I mean, again, it seems to me that I, I certainly appreciate your understanding of it, that it's more of a, 
a, a whole brain process. It's not like um, like a crick with that single point in in the brain being kind of the the master regulator of, of consciousness. So, but with with that in mind, with those two hypotheses in mind, um, what way do you think that machines can play a role in consciousness? Then, yeah. So um, currently, we have neural recording devices uh, that are incredibly, are, they're growing every day and how, um, how many more neurons we can record from. We have some people in the field now uh, saying that they've recorded from tens of thousands of neurons at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are now able to image large areas of the brain at really fine resolutions. So we can see the instant by instant changes and fluctuations in neural activity. So uh, machines are being much more, are are doing an incredible job at being able to record the brain. Um, As well, um, we are developing so many cool technologies and able to predict what the brain activity is intending to do. Um, So just this past month, a really uh, smart group, uh, I believe they were at, um, oh gosh, I don't want to mess this up now. Um, I believe they were at, uh, crap, I just, I'll figure it out. Um, uh, yeah, I don't want to, uh, anyway, um, this, this paper published in uh, Nature Neuroscience this past month used a form of neural recording called ECOG arrays, which are um, small electrodes that sit on the brain or they sit on the skull and they pick up the kind of large low pass filtering uh, brain waves or the electric electrical activity over certain regions. So you can see kind of more local fluctuations, but it's not at the resolution of a single individual neuron. Okay. And they took this, uh, brain-wide activity, and they were able to train a neural network um, which are, or an artificial neural network, the way that your phone recognizes your face, and they were able to take the neural activity and predict what the person was reading. So they asked the subjects to read a passage, and they would look at the neural activity, and they would predict what the passage they were reading was based off of the global neural activity that was going on in the brain. And they were able to do it well. Um, So we're able to really pick up some really cool things and define neural correlates to really complex things like speech. uh, That is just, it's just mind blowing what we can do now with some of these computer scientific techniques and, and neural technologies. So there's a certain level of predictability then about the about those particular regions of the brain. Like you're you're talking about how how big are these regions that they're actually measuring? You mentioned that they're not down to the single cell necessarily, but they're taking many what thousands, couple thousands. Uh, it would probably be in the order of ten thousands. Okay. Uh, so they're picking up the global activity of around like ten thousand neurons. Huh. Okay. And they're going to. Tr- you think that they can end up translating that somehow to this transhumanism concept? I mean, I imagine that's not exactly what they're trying to do, but I mean, they're just trying to go from point 
point A to point B. But you think overall as, you know, scientists, society and things of that nature that we can actually take some of that information and some of that technology and start moving it towards a concept like transhumanism? Yeah. So, I mean, people are definitely wanting to move down that route. And I think that that's what uh, people like Elon Musk, uh, who believe that they're able to do this or the Brain Initiative, who they thought that they were also going to like do some wild things with consciousness. Um, uh, That's definitely the route that people are thinking about. Like, how can we build models of individual people's neural activity in a way that captures their experiences? Hmm. Yeah, that would be really incredible. So let me ask you kind of a, a tough question then. Do you think that it's actually possible? Um. And the current state, if it is possible, uh, it won't be for it won't be founded in our lifetime, um, which is uh, and the reason why I say that is because we're really just scratching the surface of the complexity of the brain um, to even just small experiences like how we make a decision between two objects. We are nowhere near understanding the really basic biological principles in the brain that govern these things. And each day we are are really finding just so many incredible things. Like one of the most outstanding findings about being able to replicate brain activity is the fact that um, neurons are not the only active agents in computation, meaning when a brain is active and neurons are firing and making these circuits with one another, processing information, They're not the only cell type that does this. We know that microglia are involved in other glia, which are cells that are not a neuron, but they are also in the brain, meaning um, they don't have the dendrites, soma, axon, and axon terminals, um, but they do are involved in some form of communication. Like some of them are maintaining health in the neurons and others are actually communicating and modulating signals in the brain like astrocytes astrocytes undergo this process called astrocytic waves where uh, one of them will have a change in electrical fluctuations that propagates through a bunch of these astrocytes and this has been shown to modulate some aspects of neural activity so now not only do neuroscientists have to neuroscientists have to take the um, billions of neurons in the brain and map their activity. But now we also have to add these different cell types and understand how they're being involved in these processes to really simulate and emulate um, emulate our conscious experiences. Because clearly all these things are involved or else they wouldn't be so important for um, brain processing. Yeah, as well, Yeah, uh, um, as well, even the basic computations of a neuron are changing every day. So in fundamental neuroscience, the way that neurons communicated with one another was via the action potential, where the action potential is this strong electrical wave that propagates from the neuron cell body to the axons, where then it's released either chemically or via uh, electrical synapses. And that then causes a change in electrical activity and a downstream neuron. Well, recently, um, we've discovered that neurons can actually use the dendrites 
to already begin processing information before they even get down to the soma or the cell body before an action potential even occurs we already have processing in dendrites and so that level is something that we don't typically record when we're recording from neural activity we don't get that small fluctuations at the level of a dendrite because those are just so small and but they're clearly doing something really really important to how the are uh, the neurons going to behave in the end so, so yeah so so just going off of that more then so does that mean that you know the elect the I guess the electrical impulse, just to kind of leave leave it relatively simple, um, or the action potential, that may not be 100% of the explanation anymore. That might be some percentage of the explanation for how these neurons are actually communicating with one another. Yes, yes. Um, and I think the greatest example of this would be another thing that came out, another paper came out uh, this past January that showed um, that neurons uh, can, uh, can do a basic processing, the exclusion OR function, which is or XOR or the exclusion OR, or and the AND function, which are two um, computer science functions where if an, an integrator, which integrates information, receives the same input from two different sources, it won't fire but it receives two different inputs, it'll fire. That's the exclusion or. Uh, and the AND function is if it receives the same input, it'll have a positive output, but only in that case. So this is, this was a complex thing that we kind of knew that neurons did, but we didn't know where they did it. Well, this paper just this January showed that neurons can compute the exclusion OR and the AND function in dendrites by dendritic processing. So that showed that really fundamental aspects of neural computation are done at the level of dendrites, not at the level of uh, cell bodies. So that's just adding and adding so many layers of complexity to really begin to understand this global activity and be able to map the global activity activity into a computer simulation. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I guess the original thought process was that a lot of this stuff happens at an area called the axon hillock, the kind of integration of these different signals. And now you're telling me that that some a lot of that processing actually happens far before it actually reaches that point. So just to just to conceptualize that for other people, um, well, kind of talk just really basically about how a neuron is actually constructed for those individuals that don't know what a neuron really is, kind of the three main components. Yeah, so um, the three main components would be the dendrites, uh, which receive all input from other neurons, the cell body, um, which is kind of where all those, like all the different inputs from different dendrites are integrated. And then you have the axon where the signals leave. And this area that you mentioned, the axon hillock is kind of the um, epicenter of the integration where all these signals come to. And there's the decision point, we'll call it. Um, it's not really a decision point because the neuron doesn't know what a decision is. But it's this point where if there's enough um, positive activity, the neuron will begin an action potential or begin an impulse. Or if there's not enough 
positive uh, input, then the neuron will no longer fire. So it's kind of that decision point, and it's um, it's also the point at which a lot of people have uh, suggested neuro neurons are binary uh, variables, where they either fire or they don't, and that's kind of the point where we we thought that. But now with this dendritic processing stuff, we kind of are realizing that wow, even these smaller, minute fluctuations are very, very critical to the overall processing of a neuron. Yeah, it really seems that way. Stuff I definitely had, had no idea, but I guess that's why you're the, you're the neuroscientist. <laughs> um, so, so we've got all these different, you, you've said the word computation a number of different times. Could you talk a little bit more about how, com the, I mean, to, to a person with an untrained ear, if they hear com computation, which sounds like computer, and then they hear neuron, they're trying to merge the two worlds together, biology and neuroscience with kind of a computer. So how, how would you kind of explain that, those two terms together? Yeah, so... Um Using the computer as a great analog, I think all there I and mean, there is much debate on whether or not um, the computer analogy is good or not. But um, I think it's a good way to talk to about people. Is clearly the brain is a information processor. Um, we see things about color and shade and shape, and we are able to kind of build our sensory world that has such richness to it um, based off of very low level details. Like say our retina only can perceive three colors. Um, and we can, so from those three colors, we actually get the richness of the color spectrum that we have um, based off of combining the activities of these different colored retina uh, or, or cones. Um, the different colored cones combine in some way to allow us to see things like um, purples and yellows. Um, so uh, clearly the brain does some form of or information processing. And a computer also does some form of information processing. We give it an image um, and we ask it to recognize our faces in it. Uh, that's processing the information of the Im image or the inputs to it. And so the way that these things do it is by they work in networks of um, information processors where we'll have like integrators that kind of grab all the information from what they see, say the image, um, they grab all the pixel, uh, the pixel values for color, then they kind of do some sort of differentiation on them where they subtract from different sides of the image and then they uh, completely get to a point where they can recognize your face by doing all these mathematical operations on the original image. Well, we think that neurons do some sort of mathematical operations in order for us to process the information that we have. Um, is this the true uh, thing that neurons are doing? I mean, they're not aware that they're doing math. Uh, we're just saying that it is the processes that they are undergoing um, can be described in this way, in this mathematical way. Um, and we think that it's a good way to kind of get a prediction about how brains work. 
Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. That's a great explanation. Uh, so let me jump back to transhumanism. We talked about how that you've just explained how difficult it's going to be for us to get to that point. And you also mentioned that uh, it's probably not going to be within our lifetime. Although I do plan to live to be 250 years old. So we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so what do you think it would take? Like, what do you think we would have to understand for us to get to a point where we can actually have this transhumanism become a reality? Yeah, so what we would need to understand is, I mean, first we would need to have a good definition of consciousness. <laughs> um, we would need to be able to define it in a way that we can really get at it uh, biologically. And I think once we start to get at it biologically, we will then uncover the, I guess, the fundamental principles that describe our biological consciousness. Because um, there's some things that we don't even scratch the surface on with con consciousness and its relation to the brain, like things like learning and how we change our conscious experience over time and how we even develop a consciousness. A lot of people might argue that babies aren't even conscious agents because they are purely reactionary. So at what point and what biological processes indicate this transition from non-conscious babies to conscious toddlers or something. Um, so we, we really need to have a much stronger understanding of how consciousness arrives and how consciousness stabilizes, I guess, if that makes sense. Um, because we know that there are so many, the brain is so good at adapting to environments and stimuli and experiences that clearly the consciousness has to be an updatable process. And what neural aspects indicate this updating process are also completely unresolved. So to get to that, we, I think we have to have those things answered as like, what is consciousness in at time zero? And then how does consciousness evolve delta time and over and how time changes? Um, I think that's what we'll need. Um, so I, I think that I, I think that it's that's what makes it so long away. So that it's it sounds to me like that would be just a first step, though, right? Like if you just are able to get a concrete definition of really what it is, um, and then from there from a biological aspect, you think that we would have to fully understand or be able to map or like, how do you think that we would probe the question to a point? So we would have to understand how neurons function. Obviously that's kind of the classical way of, of understanding it. But now you're mentioning that these astrocytes also have uh, different methods of communicating and have an impact on their environment beyond just kind of their support role. And then you're also saying that dendrites now have, it, it seems, I guess what I'm asking is there's so many different things that, are, and you, you keep mentioning like January. Oh, and in January they came out with this and they came out with this. And it's just like, we, we seem to be discovering all these different things, but we're not actually getting to a point where we're like, okay, I think, I think we got a pretty good grasp of this. Now we can actually attack this, this particular issue. Yeah, I mean, that is that is the true crux of the problem. We don't understand some of the most basic uh, basic ways that neurons communicate with one another. And it seems like 
you pointed out that every day something's changing about um, how we think neurons process things, um, which is an exciting time to be in neuroscience because we're really getting at this point where we finally have the technology and tools to ask these basic questions. But like you're realizing, they're very basic. They're very surface level of to how neurons actually communicate. So we will definitely need to understand these computations and how these neurons communicate with one another far more greatly uh, than we do now to even consider the idea of simulating a conscious experience or entering this transhuman state because not only do we need to understand what consciousness is, but we also need to understand what a neuron does. Yeah. And I, what I will say about neuroscience that I think is really unique about neuroscience that other, essentially any other uh, organ system or just any system in the body is that not only are you figuring out the basics, like you, you can figure out the basics of like, let's say how the heart functions, you can figure out the basics of how the liver functions. But once you figure out the basics of how the brain functions, suddenly then you can start probing questions that are far, far deeper, just like you're, you're mentioning with this transhumanism thing, which with the liver, I mean, it's it's not like people are suddenly going to have these deep philosophical discussions or, you know, society, highly society impacting uh, questions that are going to come from studying the liver. Not to say that the liver is in this incredible organ. It is. The entire body is. But um, it, that is something that's really unique about neuroscience specifically. Yeah. So even just getting to... Uh, the point where we stop having these philosophical questions and can really start asking this in an unbiased way will be a huge step forward. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Okay, so I do have one more question. Uh, well, at least one major question. Um, let's say that we can eventually accomplish the, getting to a point where we, you know, we've mapped as much as we need to map so that we can get to a point where we can achieve this level of transhumanism. How do you think that's going to impact society? How do you think that's going to impact humans? How do you think that's going to impact kind of the individual uh, understanding of consciousness? Like, how, where does that kind of take you in terms of like, once we've achieved it, what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, so um, some people would probably argue that we would no longer be human as we have cheated death and death might be one of the most important aspects to us being human. So maybe if we can upload our brains into computers, we no longer have the fear of death. Um, so that might be something that we completely lose a lot of the things that we thought were human um, because a lot of our stories and our uh, history is based on death and death as a variable. So we might see a huge cultural shift. Um, there's also the idea that, um, you know, it might be a completely, uh, a completely revolutionary experience in the sense that um, this will definitely be incredibly expensive. And so only the rich of the rich would be able to perform this because to simulate a brain, um, you would need trillions and trillions of gigabytes of RAM to <laughs> process all of this. And so it'd be incredibly expensive. So that might be another source of cultural dissidence where, or cultural issues where we're now combating over um, these resources. 
And I think finally, uh, which is something that I didn't really bring up, but I wanted to mention, and I think this might actually be a good time for it, is that there's this idea in transhumanism and uploading our brain into a computer is that once you upload your brain into a computer, it is no longer you. It's like the teleport, it's called the teleportation problem, teleporter problem, mm-hmm. where if I upload my consciousness into a computer, from that instance, and as soon as our, the instance that it's done uploading, it is now a completely different entity to me. So I am not uploaded into that computer. Excuse me. A different entity that has many of the same experiences that I have is in that computer, but I am not in that computer And this might be a very strong uh, source of anxiety for people because it's kind of defeating where you're no longer the agent that was granted immortality. Someone else is, even though they have almost all the same experiences. So, yeah, I mean, those are kind of the ways that I would imagine it shaping our humanity. There's, um, There's several... Uh, pieces of fiction that have kind have kind to or have tried to probe at the idea of what it would be like to upload our um, computers into brains, which one of them being Permutation City, which I actually had recently read, um, and that kind of got to the the expense and um, kind of the the teleporter problem and how it's uh, it's not really you in the computer. And as well as there's actually a beautiful video game, surprising or not, uh, called Soma, based off of a neuron that um, looks at transhumanism, kind of the horrifying aspects of transhumanism. If what this, if this teleporter problem is true, how that would create and instill extreme anxiety into individual agents and individual people. Yeah, those yeah. are fantastic points. I, I mean, even thinking about it some based on what are your points that you're talking about with once you upload it, you know, it, it's essentially like a secondary you. And then that's kind of the thing that ends up existing after you. But, uh, I wonder if, you know, you're, let's say you, you experience, I don't know, let's say 75 years worth of experience and it's changed your brain and it's done all these different things to your brain. Some of them have been discovered. Some of them haven't at this point, but let's just say all of them have been discovered. And then you upload that at, you know, experiences aren't necessarily things that you can control so like you you can control how you react to them but if that entity ends up experiencing things that are independent of what you've experienced over the last 75 years i mean i would imagine that it would start changing it wouldn't be the same thing that you are you know the moment it gets uploaded you're going to be as similar as you'll ever be and then the moment you know time starts ticking away every experience that's going to be different between the two the two of you will end up leading to a a change in personality and you know whatever consciousness like whatever however you end up defining that yeah and if one of the most important aspects to a definition of consciousness is subjectivity then you're exactly right then as soon as that they, that uploaded version of me gets to have its own experiences it is now a completely different conscious entity than me. We might have the same origin story, but we are no longer the same entity. It's kind of like, 
in a silly analogy, it's like the Superman or Spider-Man and the amazing Spider-Man. They're have the same origin story, but they're two completely different characters that have experienced different things throughout their uh, comic book uh, canon. Yeah, that's such a cool concept. I really wonder how that's going to turn out. Um, I do have one last question, actually. I I know I said the last one was, but um, what's something that you think is just overwhelmingly super exciting about this whole transhumanism discussion and just kind of the world of transhumanism, like what it can bring in the future? Like what's something that really gets you going? Yeah, so I think the beautiful thing about these ideas and stuff is that they're still kind of motivating cool science. I think scientists, and I know personally, and um, and other people are really motivated by understanding consciousness and, and kind of getting to a point where we might be able to do that. Um, again, I don't think that it's going to happen in our lifetime. And uh, yeah, but um it's motivated cool science. And I think that the things that are being progressed on like Neuralink uh, in particular, going back to Elon Musk's company um, are really starting to put out some cool science with the brain machine interfaces. Um, So one of the groups that, or one of the, um, yeah, one of the conditions that is going to receive a lot of novel technologies over the next 10, 20 years is say the paralyzed or paraplegic, uh, groups uh, because we're now having the technologies to um, record from thousands and thousands of neurons as well as being able to decode uh, these immense amount of uh, the immense amount of neurological data that we will um, we're then going to be able to develop really cool prosthetics and other brain machine interfaces to allow and give these people the ability to walk and move, any appendages that they are no longer able to to use due to some trauma or some biological disease, uh, that will will actually work. Um, And we see these technologies being developed and revolutionized uh, daily now. And it's only a matter of time till we have one that truly works. Do you think you think that level of technology? So we've talked about consciousness and whatnot. So you're taking a few steps back, right? So do you think that that kind of technology would be something that would be achievable in our lifetime? Absolutely. I think that that uh, technology will definitely be seen in our lifetime as we already have some um, brain machine interfaces such as uh, prosthetic arms that are doing wonders to help people now. And um, people are getting really close to answering these questions. We're still a far way away um, because there is some issues with understanding how motor cortex works. Um, a lot of these prosthetics, uh, there's evidence to suggest that our brain actually learns how to use the prosthetic, not the prosthetic being able to read our brain activity. Mm-hmm. So another kudos to the brain for being such a cool uh, tool. Right. But we are getting closer and closer to really developing some of these amazing technologies like the speech or uh, the reading interpreter or decoder that I mentioned earlier in our discussion, as well as these prosthetic uh, prosthetic uh, brain machine interfaces. They're really going, they're really on a steep incline um 
in how they're being developed. New things are coming out daily. So you think that Neuralink, you've mentioned it a few times, you think that Neuralink is kind of headed in, that, in, that cor- in the correct direction when it comes to studying this kind of stuff? Yes, absolutely. Um, they, they, they've come out and said, like, no, these are the things that we're actually doing um, because they're, they're realistic, achievable goals, still kind of towards that same fanciful uh, trying to escape death kind of <laughs> idea. Right. Um, but it, it, it's a much more realizable goal that will still have a great impact. And other companies and researchers are also making great strides in this. I don't want this to be just a Neuralink only thing. Uh, they're just Elon Musk, such a well-known figure that it's uh, easy to comprehend him thinking like this. Um, but also like BlackRock Microsystems is really doing incredible work in this. And then all universities have typically have some really incredible researchers that are getting at uh, developing these neural technologies, such as brain machine interfaces. I know I keep saying, saying that this is going to be my last question, but <laughs> I genuinely have one more question. Do you think that uh, neuroscience is going to end up branching where you have uh, this subset of neuroscience that's going to be focused on this specific area of research? Yeah, so you already have that. Um, you already have conferences that are dedicated only to uh, neural technologies um, and brain machine interfaces. Like that already exists in the neuroscientific community. Mm-hmm. Um, just because it has, like it has to. There's so many different uh, variables in the brain that are important to understand disease and disease states. And as we both know, in modern biological sciences, that's kind of the way to do research is to have some sort of disease state or disease relevant model um, to be able to get funding for. So uh, brain machine interface is just one subset of that answer or helping people with motor disorders um, and, and other things is, is one, one subfield of neuroscience because there's just so many other issues that come up when the brain's malfunctioning. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, it's a fascinating area. Uh, again, like I said, I had no idea about any of this stuff. So <laughs> I'm really happy to have you come on here and actually explain a lot of like what's going on. Like, I mean, of course, I had a classical understanding of how neurons work and whatnot. So even learning about these these differences in the dendrites and learning about what you call the astrocyte waves or something, astrocytic waves. Yeah, astrocytic waves, yes. Yeah, so learning about that stuff, I... You know, it's just stuff that I've never come across. So it's cool to get somebody on who is reading, you know, that literature that's reading kind of that cutting edge uh, literature and is able to talk about this stuff in in, in with more detail and with more uh, information than I can at, at this present moment. So thanks again for coming on. And um, yeah, I, I hope I hope that people that listen to this will have a better appreciation of kind of transhumanism and, and how difficult it is to, to, to learn about consciousness and define consciousness and create a, some sort of model for, for tracking down consciousness. It seems like we're chasing it as opposed to, to really studying it at this point. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think exactly what it is. And I definitely hope that, uh, yeah, people just come and appreciate how, complex this organ in your head is <laughs> <laughs> yeah if, if they didn't already yeah absolutely it's so much more <laughs> complex than people understand <laughs> yeah okay well cool thanks for thanks for coming on and thanks for talking i really appreciate it yeah thanks for inviting me nick